Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Executive Pastor Dr. Tucker York. I invite you to turn with me to 2 Samuel 15. We're covering two chapters, uh, but I will only read part of the first chapter as we move along and hope to finish our 2 Samuel series by Thanksgiving. My wife and I have noticed in recent years a, a trend in entertainment, pop entertainment of sorts, with, that puts new spins on traditional villains and enemies and evil. You can think of the, the hit uh, Broadway musical Wicked, to the movie Megamind, to the more recent Cruella on Disney+. Plus. Each of these entertainment venues offer new twists on traditional villains. They're clever, and they flirt with making evil somewhat attractive, sometimes calling good evil and evil good. When it comes to Scripture, regarding good and evil and friends and enemy, the Bible draws the dividing line at the cross. People are either loyal or opposed to God's kingdom and his agenda for salvation. In our, pa- in our passage, it's very clear with the division between the enemies and the friends of the cross. As we approach this text, our prayer is that we may be made wiser to discern the difference and strengthen our loyalty to the way of the Master. Please follow as I read 2 Samuel 15, verses 1 through 16. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will bring, indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem, who were invited guests, and they, were, they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor from his city of Gilo. 
And the conspiracy grew strong. And the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all the servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him. And they halted at the last house. This is God's word. Father, I would indeed ask this evening that the words of my mouth, that the meditations of each of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The making of a good hero story usually involves developing the villain. A a bland villain is the downfall of a story, but a rich villain, a well-developed villain, can help bring about the story. And as any good story goes, knowing the enemy keys success. Whether it's Spider-Man and his legion of foes or great literature like Lord of the Rings and the evil Lord Sauron. Great dramas and stories present villains that are compelling, believable, even terrifying, and yet defeatable. Such enemies are motivated by a variety of motives, ambition, greed, revenge. In these chapters, David's enemies share all of these motives. And yet, in their supposed rebellion against him is ultimately a rejection of God and his kingdom and the way of the cross. David faces grave peril, but is helped by his friends and delivered by the wise providence of Almighty God, whose kingdom will not be thwarted by the whims of wicked men. In these chapters, we find a a, a micro-gospel, the story of the Lord's anointed, attacked, vilified, and betrayed, and yet emerges victorious through humility, wisdom, courage, and God's way of the cross. We first want to consider several enemies of the cross— We begin with Absalom, the usurper. Absalom is a man of appearances. He makes a great impression. He's a pretty face who talks well, but has little to no substance. The chapter opens with Absalom gathering chariots and horses and men to run before him. He's the the young promising prince flexing his muscles and showing off before the crowds. And he is casually dismissed by the king and his court, but things begin to get serious. To his credit, Absalom does not sleep in like an entitled prince. He rises early. He goes to the entrance of the court, which was the city gate, to greet Israelites who came to bring their grievances, who came to make an appeal to the king when their case was not satisfactorily resolved at the local level. 
You see, in those days, the king was the executive, legislative, and judicial branch all in one. There was no separation of powers. And Absalom, for his part, was dissatisfied with the injustice of his own father and begins to sow seeds of discord and discontent, passing on a tune among the people that this administration is inefficient, even uncaring. He offers a new vision with himself as the solution when justice would roll like rivers across Israel if only he were king. Many social justice movements also sow envy, discord, make false accusations, overpromise and under-deliver in our own day. Nothing is new under the sun. Absalom flatters the men of Israel. He is like the politician who glad hands, who kisses babies, who takes advantage of photo opportunities with the downtrodden. He takes his subjects by the hand. He kisses them, offering them access to his presence. He's a man of the people. He understands their pain. He will right their wrongs. And so it concludes that Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. This passage reminds us that people are easily manipulated by appearances, by a smooth talker who pretends to understand, who promises a little bit of heaven on earth. God's people are oftentimes no different. Eager to follow politicians who promise to protect them from their cultural enemies. Spiritual leaders who may preach the word with truth and power, but lack Christ-like humility and self-control in recent years. Many prominent evangelical pastors have been forcibly removed because of their abuse of power, tyrannically responding to those who challenge or question their decisions and methods. Theirs is the way of vainglory, not the way of the cross. The way of the cross is characterized by death to self. A humble leader who can admit mistakes, share leadership, listen intently, make sacrifices for himself first before forcing it upon others, who seeks God's glory and the good of others. Principles that we ought to see in our homes, our church, in public places where we have responsibilities. Absalom bides his time crouching like the tiger, looking to pounce upon his prey. He waits for years. And when the time was ripe, he asks leave of his father to go to Hebron, the place of his birth, under the pretense of making a sacrifice to fulfill vows. And so the secret plot unfolds as he sends out messengers and gathers men of reputation, even recruiting Ahithophel, his father's chief and most respected counselor. This is more than the grievance of a son against a flawed father. This is defiance against God's rightful authority over his people. 
Absalom has a Satan-like hatred of God's kingdom, God's ways, and the man appointed over God's people. He is like Korah, who saw the signs and wonders of God in the wilderness and yet nevertheless challenged Moses' leadership, only to be swallowed up with this whole family in the bowels of the earth. Similar judgment will come upon Absalom in humiliating defeat on the battlefield. When grieved by authorities, we ought to give pause to our words, to consider whether our reasons are righteous or selfish. We must take caution before we speak any evil of those in authority, even if we aim to hold them accountable to the standards of God's word. Next is Ziba, the manipulator. I fast forward to chapter 16 to consider the other enemies in these passages, and we will circle back to look at David's response, the aid of his friends, and the way of the cross. In the next chapter, chapter 16, as they are leaving the city, David and his men are greeted by Ziba, a servant of Saul, who was charged with taking care of Mephibosheth, the crippled son of Jonathan. Ziba greets David with a supply of donkeys, bread, raisins, fruit, and wine. It is a welcome gift. It's interesting that David asks him why he is there. Ziba responds that this is a free offer of transportation, food, and drink. Is he loyal to David? He seems so. But he's not going into exile. David inquires further about where is his master Mephibosheth. Ziba uses the occasion to tell David that Mephibosheth is back in the city, believing that this day the kingdom of his father would be restored to him. And having no time to verify this account, David makes a rash decision to transfer Mephibosheth's property to Seba. Mephibosheth will later contradict this account, exposing Ziba as a liar, as an exploiter and manipulator. Ziba is a man who plays it both ways. He covers his tracks well. He can show honor, provides David a generous sending off gift just in case David is restored to the throne. But he stays behind, content to live under the reign of Absalom. His are material priorities, not kingdom priorities. Ziba is greedy for gain and will not hesitate to exploit and seize the property of a vulnerable man which David will later split between them. Ziba is like the convenience store owner who jacks up the prices of gas and water as a hurricane afflicts the Gulf Coast. I'm here to help myself. He exploits the vulnerable and lines his pockets 
And zebras are legion in our world, and sometimes too common even in the church. Greed got the best of Judas. It challenges us to ask whether we will remain loyal to God, even when we suffer a loss, or is our real commitment to our bottom line, to business networks, a comfortable retirement? As we were reminded from Pastor Walker last week, you cannot serve God and money. Next is Shimei, the accuser. David and his men proceed and are greeted by another enemy, Shimei, the Benjamite, who proceeds to attack David from his high position, a bit protected from David and his men, assaulting and pelting David with stones and accusations calling David a man of blood and worthless. Shimei wrongly implicates David in the bloodshed that befell the house of Saul. Now, he was not wrong that God was judging David, but for the wrong reasons. David was in the right regarding King Saul. David is in the wrong regarding Uriah the Hittite. David's right-hand man, Abishai, is eager to defend the king's honor and recognizes that men without heads do not curse and wants to go take Shimei out. David, interestingly, restrains his servant and allows this Benjamite to continue cursing him, willing to undergo the humiliation of submitting to God's reproof. David takes the long view and will let God be his avenger and exonerate him. Later, Shimei will reverse course and pay homage to David after he is restored to his throne. But Solomon will later have him killed when he disobeys the order not to leave the city. The name Satan in the Bible means accuser. He is the accuser of the brethren. And we must guard ourselves against his attacks when he would sow in our hearts doubt and discouragement to our sensitive consciences. Rather than believe his lies, we must hold fast to the truth. The gospel of God's grace tells us that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. But the world, the flesh, and the devil would heap judgment upon us, and when it does so, we must put on the breastplate of righteousness and hold forth the shield of faith, standing alone in the atoning work of Jesus Christ, by which we may fend off the fiery darts of the enemy. Our last enemy is Ahithophel, the betrayer. He is the chief counsel of David who betrays his master and joins Absalom's conspiracy. He was the most respected of David's counselor. His counsel was considered equal to the word of God. He, he proceeds to counsel Absalom with a bold and godless deed to violate David's concubines. The intent was to send a message 
that there would be no reconciliation between Absalom and David. It's a winner-take-all situation. There would be no compromise. Now, Scripture does not give any reasons for his betrayal of David, but there is evidence that he was the grandfather of Bathsheba and perhaps was nursing a cynical grudge against David. His military counsel follows, instructing Absalom and his men to attack David immediately while he is discouraged and weary and has no time to regroup. Ahithophel would take all the risk and lead these men into battle and kill only David and save bloodshed. It's what the British army should have done to squash the American Revolutionary Army under the leadership of General Washington, but they failed by playing it safe, by taking their time, by giving opportunities to our Revolutionary Army to regroup and to eventually defeat a superior power. Absalom, who has no military experience, second-guesses this wise worldly counsel. It was effective, but not glamorous. He doubts, and so he takes the advice of Hushai, who we'll meet a little later. And Hushai takes the opportunity to flatter this vain king-to-be and plant in his head a vision of glory, of himself leading the men into battle. Absalom's skill politically was matched only by his ineptitude militarily. Ahithophel is the Judas of the Old Testament. You remember that Judas was the most trusted of the twelve. He kept the purse. He kept the money for the disciples. And it was only after his death that the others learned that he had been helping himself to it and was consumed with his greed to betray their Lord. But God uses the schemes of wicked men to accomplish his purposes. Even when there is grave betrayal by a friend, that cannot stop God's redemptive plans to make us more like Christ. And if you have been betrayed by someone you love, take consolation with David and with Jesus, the true friend who sticks closer than a brother. Let us turn to the friends of David, the friends of the Lord's anointed verses, Ittai, the true-hearted. We circle back to chapter 15, verse 18 to see who is it that will go with David. First come the Cherethites and the Pelethites, David's bodyguard, men of Crete. These are foreigners who have been grafted into the covenant people and adopt the way of the cross. Emphasis is then given to 600 Gittites, Philistine men of Gath, and their leader, Ittai. Somehow these men fell out of favor with their Philistine commanders and take up with David, forsaking their pagan ways to dwell among God's people. And either out of concern for their welfare or to test them, David 
instructs Ittai, who has only been with him for a short time, to take his men back to remain in the city and to serve the new king Absalom. Like Naomi exhorting Ruth, David tells Ittai, take your brothers back and may the Lord show you his steadfast love and faithfulness. But like Ruth, Ittai will have none of it. Ittai is as loyal as the day is long. He will go wherever David goes, even if it is unto death. Commentator Dale Ralph Davis says that Ittai is an island of fidelity and a sea of treachery. Can you and I say with equal conviction as Ittai that we will follow Christ even unto death, even unto pain and suffering and ridicule. Ittai, a mere foreigner, demonstrates a deep and abiding faith in the Lord's anointed and would rather die than be found unfaithful, abandoning his post at his Lord's side. Next is Zadok, the stout-hearted, the priest, Zadok and Abiathar bring the ark out to take it into exile with David. But David humbly and wisely instructs them to take the ark back and remain in the city. David will not treat the ark like a talisman to somehow guarantee his victory in battle. No, he submits to the Lord's judgments. And if the Lord is pleased with him, will permit him to return. Like David, we must take full responsibility for our sin, take ownership of it, and accept the consequences and fall into the Lord's merciful hands. But may we also, like David, be willing to take action even while trusting the Lord's sovereign and good providence. David does not fail to act. He, the strategist, has schemes of his own. He makes plans and plants Zadok and the sons of the priest inside the city, instructing them to send news was a dangerous assignment. Remember what Saul had done to the priest of Nob, slaughtering more than 70 of them when they appeared disloyal to him. How would Absalom treat Zadok, Abiathar, and the others? They're like Obadiah, the man that served King Ahab in the days of Elijah, hiding a hundred of the Lord's prophets. Such men risk much for the kingdom of God. And the final friend is Hushai, the shrewd-hearted. Hushai comes and meets David with his coat torn and dirt on his head. He will not turn away from David like Ahithophel. But David concludes that Hushai will only be a burden to him, perhaps due to his age or health situation. David assigns his counselor a great task. 
to foil Absalom's military council, to go back under the pretense as a counselor and feign loyalty to the young king. Deception is part of war. And he is tasked with defeating the council of Ahithophel. David down, discouraged, his life on the line, yet has friends to lean upon. This speaks well of David's character and for theirs as well. He has friends who are willing to sacrifice, who are loyal, who are dedicated to God's kingdom. He has chosen his companions wisely. And that is instructive to us. Our friends are very influential to us. Friends are called to be there for you and you for them. Jesus entrusted himself to the disciples as friends, though they let him down, denied him, betrayed him. And yet he still called them friends and said these words just hours before his death, greater love has no one than this that he laid down his life for his friends. He would go on to show them the full extent of his love. And after his resurrection, the disciples gained courage and proceeded to carry out the mission entrusted to them, fanning out into this dark and treacherous world full of enemies of the cross and to meet those enemies with a humble, faithful, gracious heart. To demonstrate before these hateful observers the way of the cross. And so we conclude with some highlights of how David bears likeness to the Savior and the way of the cross in these passages. After being caught off guard with Absalom's conspiracy, David awakes from his slumber and takes decisive action to to deliver his house and his servants from grave danger from Absalom and his men. David knows he is not prepared to defend the city. He must go into exile. And by doing so, David not only spares the city of the devastation of war, but it gives them the opportunity, opportunity to determine the loyalists from the waverers. You see, by staying behind in the city would make him vulnerable to the turncoats who might allow Absalom and company into the city in secret. Only true loyalists would follow him out into the wild. Absalom was vain. He only thought of himself. David thinks of others and takes up responsibility for his role as king. When David urged Ittai to stay behind in the city, how tempting was it to take hold of those 600 fighters to take with him into the wilderness? 
in seeking the Lord's steadfast love and faithfulness on Ittai, David is anchoring deep, taking up refuge in God, his Savior, even when he knows not where he will go. David is chastened by his sin, but he will not turn to self-pity or shake his fist at God. The people wept as David and his household and his servants left the city and entered into the wilderness, this time not as a fugitive, but an exile. After committing grievous sin, but now comes home to roost the consequences that bear in chaos and rebellion even from his own household. David will not defy the Lord's discipline, nor will he go limp and do nothing. He takes action, mitigates the threat against God's people and accepts his lot before the Lord. He doesn't know how long this wilderness experience will last. And we see David weeping, barefoot crossing the Mount of Olives, and there foreshadowing his greater son on the very place that he would pray and prepare for his trial and the cross. On that spot, David is informed that Ahithophel has joined the conspiracy double-crossed and betrayed by a friend, David prays that the Lord would turn this counsel into foolishness. And that prayer is answered with the arrival of Hushai, who foils the military council. A thousand years later, a similar prayer is made, that God would take the foolishness of the world and exalt the wisdom of God, the very place where Jesus would be betrayed like his forefather David will pray and entrust himself to the Lord his God. And God would take the wickedness of men and bring about the redemption of all of God's people. The cross, though seemingly a victory for the enemy, was the ultimate victory of God to deal with our sin and reconcile us to our God forever. The enemies of the cross are legion. Faithful friends are few. The way of the cross is narrow. But those who keep their eyes fixed on the Savior... He will see us safely through the valley and into his glorious presence forever. Let us pray. Our gracious God, our Father, we are so grateful for the gospel hope that's demonstrated in the life of David and fulfilled in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Though we are surrounded by enemies, help us to hold fast to you and to one another and help us to remain faithful, walking the way of the cross with our eyes fixed upon you, the Lord of glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, 
contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.